Thank you, friends. So good to be with you. Um, if it's all right, I want to dive in, not wait in. I've got a lot on my heart for you today. And I don't know, it's just a, it's especially humbling for me when there's just sometimes more than others, I'm just very aware that I'm trying to teach things that literally cannot be taught. Like there's no way to say it um, that makes it graspable. And I think the beauty of that is it just brings us to a moment where we're able to ask the Holy Spirit together to reveal the things to us that really only the Spirit can reveal. So let's, if you join me for a moment just like that. Spirit of God, Spirit of truth. You're the one who searches the depths of God and searches our own depths. You're the one who makes the mysteries of God known to women and to men. And I just ask now that you would really open up our eyes in the way that only you can. We need to see things today that we don't know how to see. Um, And I just pray, Lord, uh, not for a way that we would grow in intellect, not that we would become smarter, uh, but for that deep kind of heart knowing where we're tuned into your presence and to the scripture in a way that just really allows you to make yourself known to us in the ways that I know that you desire to make yourself known to your children. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Acts 9 is where we're headed. It's the story of Saul's conversion. I preached in that story last fall, but it's a lectionary text for today, and I'm preaching in a very different way in spirit. And I want to do that with a really particular framework, really particular context in mind. Last week, if you were here, we heard an outrageously great sermon from Dr. Chris Green. It's really, really beautiful. And so much of the through line of that message was this idea that a life with God is actually a series of conversions, one conversion after another. Not just, yes, there is an initial moment that we come to encounter Jesus, but then this has to keep happening over and over. So it's not just that we have been saved. We are being saved. We need to continue to be saved. We will be saved. So, In fact, I would go so far as to say that for Paul in particular, the very idea of salvation encompasses everything that happens from when we first meet Jesus until we're actually transformed into the image of, of Christ. Like all of that is salvation for Paul. So I love this idea of a life with God as a series of conversions. And I want us to read this text of Acts 9, of Saul's conversion, with that in view. This is, of course, a story about how Saul will spiritually and physically go from being blind to seeing. And really throughout the New Testament, I think that that metaphor of um, going from blindness to sight, I think is even the central metaphor for salvation in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John. John 9 is a great example of this, that whenever you see Jesus healing blind people in the book of nine, in the, in the book of nine, <laughs> in, the, in the book of John, like in John chapter nine, um, you, there's always more to it than that. Yes, he's healing blinded eyes, but especially in John's Gospel, this always takes on kind of a metaphorical meaning too about uh, a different kind of seeing. Because what we see like in John nine <laughs> is the way that the scribes and Pharisees The people who are most convinced that they see in Scripture are always the people who really don't see at all, right? And so this whole notion of of how we come to see. In fact, I would go so far as to say that Christianity is a way of seeing. It's what it is. It's a way of seeing. When we come to Christ, nothing immediately changes about the world, but our perspective on the world is radically altered. We're coming to see God in a different way. We're coming to see ourselves in a different way. We're coming to see the people around us in a different way. That is the very essence of salvation. But like what Chris talked about last week, 
it is a process. It, there is a, it, it is a series of conversions. Let's just go right to the text. Acts 9, beginning with verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Great to see that kind of gender equality there. He would equally imprison and kill men or women. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Let's stop right there for right now. So framework for the rest of the message. I don't want to oversimplify But I think it's fair to think of what we get in Acts 9 is two different ways of seeing. Really, not just two different ways of seeing, but two different ways of living, uh, two different postures, two very different ways of approaching the world. And there is more to this than just saved and unsaved. It, It goes a step further than that. The first posture is what we see in Saul in the beginning of the story. Saul is on his way, he's on the road to Damascus. Funny enough that like uh, kind of throughout the history of the church, we've always told this as Saul riding on a horse. Now if you note it, it doesn't actually say he's on a horse. But Christian art for 2,000 years always has Saul on a horse. Whether or not, you know, a lot of people don't think he was. But what we're told is that he falls to the ground when the light comes. I actually really find the image of Saul on the horse, though, to be useful, whether or not that's literally true, because I think that image is a very helpful, almost kind of a metaphor, almost a symbol of the person that Saul is in this text. Saul is, is, is a person who is riding high. Saul is arrogant, young, accomplished, as we know through the rest of his testimony in Scripture. He's the Hebrew of Hebrews, Jew of Jews. He, he has a, a, this amazing religious pedigree. He is devoted to God. He does what he does out of a place of zealotry. He thinks he's doing the right thing in imprisoning, and in sometimes like in the case of Stephen, killing these Christians. But Saul is so, so certain, so confident about how he sees the world. Until the bright light comes and knocks him to the ground, I think there's something in this story that speaks to us about the very nature of Revelation itself, is that in the kingdom of God, whenever you come to see anything, the only way that God can ever open our eyes, the only way that God can ever give give us new vision is if we allow God, I don't want to say allow, allow is not the right phrase here, Saul doesn't allow anything, (laughs) Saul just gets blinded. What has to happen to be able to see is that God just has to blind us. And I think this is a point that's often overlooked, is that nobody's able to see anything rightly and clearly unless God blinds us first. I think often we come to the Lord feeling that we're too uncertain and we want God to make us certain. I think more often than not, the converse of that is actually true. We are certain about all the wrong things. And what we need from God before he gives us sight is we need to be struck blind. We need to be knocked off our high horse. We need to, to, we need to have our assumptions thrown off. You know, I have never in my life, like, um, I don't know, I still look in the mirror and see myself as the, 
greasy seventh grader I was with big glasses and a turtleneck and a gold chain and fuzzy sweater. And like I've never, I have plenty of reasons to feel real humble about my life, like all the time. Like that's always been true. So I've never gone around as a person that went around like thinking I'm cool or that I'm smart or that I know things. Like I'm just like, I don't live from that posture. And yet, I still feel like the more I come to know about myself and my story, there are so many ways, what was it like that kind of arrogance? So many ways that pride has just, has dominated most of my life. Because it's, it's more subtle than that. The assumption that you know more than you know. The assumption that you know more about God than you really do. The assumption that you understand people in ways that you really don't. The assumption that somehow you see that your perspective on the world is the right perspective. I've lived my life through so, so much of my life kind of through that grid. And when we are living from that place, and I will go so far as to say whenever you're living from this place. So even if you've already had a Damascus Road encounter and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, this will still always be true. Whenever you are riding high on your horse, and you are certain and secure and confident, beware, friends, the light is coming, and you're about to get knocked down. Am I telling the truth? I mean, don't hear this like with with judgment. I don't want to say this like in kind of a spirit of, if you're riding high, God's going to cut you down. (laughs) I want to say it more like, if you're riding high, God's about to cut you down. (laughs) See how casual that is? Like, it'll be okay. You'll, you'll be fine. You'll think you're going to die, but you're not actually going to die. It'll feel like you are. It will be an exact simulation of death, but you won't die really. Because I really believe this, like, whatever's bad for the ego is good for the soul. Like, God, there ha- for us to be able to see, God always has to humble us first. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Has to humble us first. So... Whenever we're riding high, it's inevitable. Whenever I'm feeling too certain, whenever I think I've got it, let me really stress this one, whenever I think I've got the Lord, whenever I think I've got him figured out and I've got my theological system down, those are the moments when, bam, inevitably the light's gonna come and knock me to the ground. Um, Ego, by the way, is not a bad thing. Ego is necessary. It's more like kind of how we see ourselves, but it's not who we really are. That, uh, That sense of, how we, we see ourselves and what we, the, 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 how, how good we think we are, all that has to be really, really broken. The crazy thing about this is while it is painful and while it is humiliating, who likes to be knocked on their fanny on the road to Damascus? It's so embarrassing to kind of be at that place. It's embarrassing when you're a person who's used to being strong and making your own decisions and being competent, who wants to go blind? The extraordinary thing, though, is that this is grace. It is the grace of God that does this. Grace is a hard-edged thing, my friends. Grace is a hard-edged thing. And there's this way that grace has of having to sometimes assault us, I think, so that we can become the kinds of people who are able to see rightly. My favorite story about this, I really, really love Flannery O'Connor, the Southern novelist. Like, I'm very haunted by the specter of Flannery O'Connor, like, She's so genius to me. I'm a product of the South and all of that, and I feel like I've just got a lot of her in me. And my favorite short story of hers is one called Revelation. If you've never read it, I know it's free on the interweb, so you can just Google that today and read it if you want. My favorite short story of Flannery O'Connor's. And it feels like an injustice to try to like tell it in short because you can't do it justice to tell about it without reading it. But here's my best shot at like the, the basics of that story. So 
it centers around a lady named Ruby Turpin. And I love this character. She's this kind of big southern lady who's very self-assured, very pious, very certain of herself and of her own opinions. Um, she constantly goes around thanking the Lord, saying things like, thank you, Jesus, that things are the way they are. It could have been different. She, she has a kind of condescending way of looking at people, but she, she feels very righteous. So the, uh, the story starts with her in a waiting room, like a doctor's waiting room, and she's you know, doing what she does, kind of looking at everybody, sort of judging them, sizing them up, making a little bit of conversation, polite, but if you read between the lines, kind of condescending. And in the midst of all this, she notices this one girl in the room who uh, her, her complexion is bad. She has kind of a furrowed brow. She looks really unpleasant. Immediately, Mrs. Turpin starts making assumptions about her like she does of everybody else, kind of judging the girl. But the girl, she's a college student, and she's reading a book. And, you know, it kind of goes on with Ruby Turpin making small talk with everybody. And you do, you always get that kind of subtle sense of pride, of kind of ego running underneath all that. Until finally, out of nowhere, and it's so great how quickly this happened, the girl, whose name not coincidentally is Mary Grace, note that, if Connor was Catholic, Mary Grace, the girl throws a book at Mrs. Turpin, the book she's reading, and it hits her upside the head. So next thing you know, she's flat on her back, like seeing stars. What just happened to me? And she looks over to see Mary, and the girl is just seething at her, like they're restraining her. And she sees her with what seems like deep hatred. But she has this moment where now Mrs. Turpin, who the, the super dignified, respectable lady, laying on the floor looking at Mary Grace, she can tell that this woman knows something about her. Like she sees something in her eyes that looks kind of ancient. And so Mrs. Turpin responds to this and says, tell me what it is that you have to say. Tell, t- tell me what you need to tell me. And Mary Grace looks at her with seething hatred and says, Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. This is a great story. This is Flannery O'Connor for you, right? Always a lot of shock in these stories. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. And that's the end of the scene. So now Mrs. Turpin, who's had this very strange encounter, goes back to the farm where her and her husband Claude live. She's tending to the pigs. It's evening. And as she's looking out over the sunset, she has a revelation. The name of the short story is Revelation. She looks in the sky, and she sees the language in the story is a battalion of freaks and lunatics. All the people that Ruby Turpin looked down on, all the people that she judged, all the people like Mary Grace that somehow she saw as being unfit or unworthy. Black people, she's a very prejudiced person. People that are of a lower income status than her own. All these people that she's labeled as freaks and lunatics. And she sees them in a processional marching to heaven, leaping and shouting. And then she sees at the end of the line, she sees a vision of herself and her husband, Claude, and all the other dignified, respectable types bringing up the very end of the line, looking like forlorn and full of despair. That is the revelation that she has in the end. And I think that story is so genius because not unlike Acts 9, I think it tells us something about the very nature of revelation of how God caused us to see. This is how grace works. Most of the time, God in his infinite mercy and tender love for his sons and daughters has to hit us upside the head with grace in an aggressive way. And when it first happens, it's disorienting. You're confused. You're bewildered. Saul is blinded. The person who thought he saw everything now can't see anything at all. And the man who before 
was so competent and confident in his own sense of saying, now he can't see it all. God takes that away from us as an act of grace so that it can prepare us to see. That's how it functions in the Flannery O'Connor story. It's precisely because Ruby Turpin gets hit with the book and has this encounter that kind of hijacks her that opens her up to see in a way that she was not able to see before, which really moves into the second part of the message. If that first posture, that first way of seeing is riding the horse, looking down, looking down at everyone else, presuming that you understand more than you understand, presuming that you know more than you know. The second half of the text gives us the second posture. Let's go back to that, picking up at verse eight. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, He answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. We can stop right there for right now. So the second half of the text gives us this second posture, this very different way of seeing the world, this very different place that we can live from. Instead of riding high on your horse, confident in your own judgments and your own assertions, now we see Saul blind. Now we see him feeling around. Now we see him depending on the people around him to lead him to go anywhere. Now he's dependent. Now he's trusting. The first half of Saul's life, he, all of his sentences end with periods, with periods. All of his sentences end with like they're all... It's all declarative. But now Saul is driven by questions. The man who ended every sentence with a period and was so certain of how the world works and how everything is supposed to fit now has this question, who are you, Lord? And as some translations have it, who are you, Lord? And then what do you want me to do? Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? He doesn't know the answer. He's open, he, he, can't, he knows he cannot see. He's now humbled, he's open to God in a way that he was not open before. And it's only when he has this encounter then with Ananias, and I'll get to that in a couple minutes, who lays hands on him and prays for him that finally his own sight is restored. So here's the question I wanna raise from this. Is this, going back to Chris's sermon from last week, is this just a once in a lifetime event that you have the moment of conversion where you are blinded and then your sight has to be restored and now you can see and you can always see? 
Or, or, or does there have to be a lot of Damascus Road experiences? Do we ask the question once, who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Or are these supposed to be the questions that drive our very lives? See, if you're reading this like in kind of a hyper-literal way, I know there's one way you could say, okay, like, we know Paul's story. He only has one road to Damascus. Yes and no. Only one road to Damascus. But I think if we pay attention to Paul's life, even after conversion here, what we actually see is that this experience will recur over and over again for the Apostle Paul. Of, of being blinded, disoriented, not being able to see in a way that will push him deeper and deeper into trust. Here's the thing that might blow some of your minds. Again, it's still blowing mine, and it's, I, I don't always know what to do with it, but I really believe this is true. The closer we get to God, the more we grow in grace. There's not a sense that we're accumulating more information, more data about God, more theology. That's been a lot of the mistake in my life, incidentally, is everything is so head. I tend to, I do everything with my head. I intellectualize my emotions. I live so much easier here than I do from here. I miss a lot that way. Like if I'll just read enough books and I'll, if I can know enough, somehow this will get me closer to Jesus. Actually, the closer we get to God, the more we have to move into unknowing. It actually gets more mysterious. It actually gets murkier and cloudier the higher up you go the more things become unclear, the more it becomes a necessity, not just for this, a moment of your life, but to start to live every moment the way that Paul does here. Where instead of going around assuming that you have all the answers, and instead of ending all of your sentences with periods, now you're being driven by this. Who are you, Lord? I don't want to presume I know things about you that I do not know. What do you have for me to do? I so want to ask that one time and it be answered and just be done. But isn't the way it really works that you get up the next day and no matter what kind of experience you've had of God or of Scripture, no matter what it was that you know before, you have to ask the questions all over again? Who are you, Lord? And what do you have for me to do? Here's my, I don't like the proof text, but to use that language, here's my proof text for why I think this continues to happen in the life of Paul. There's a really fascinating text in Corinthians. Can we go to that? From 2 Corinthians 12. This is long after Saul's conversion to Paul. This is long after Ananias has laid hands on him and his sight has been restored. He is well on the other side of this experience. This is the mature, seasoned Apostle Paul, the brightest spiritual teacher in the history of the world, up there with Moses. He has this unique understanding and insight. He's an apostle, all of these kinds of things. And Paul writes here and says, it is necessary to boast, he's being kind of facetious here, it's necessary to boast, nothing is to be gained by it, but if we're going to boast, if we're going to play that game, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Let me tell you about revelation, Paul says. Let me tell you about insight. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now how's that for a mystical experience? Caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, again, God knows, those are key words too, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. Are you hearing this? I got a friend of a friend <clears throat> who went to the third heaven and who saw things that no one else was allowed to see, was permitted to understand things no one else was allowed to understand. 
new things that no other human being had experienced. This deep, we might say a mystical or charismatic kind of experience. But he goes on to say, somewhere, yes, on behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. So Paul, like, like, yeah, yeah, just being honest, yes, I have exceptional revelations. That part is true. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated. Do you hear it? Because long after your initial conversion, we still have the instinct to get back up on our high horse and to think that we know more than we know and that we understand more than we understand. To keep me from being too elated. What? There's danger to spiritual experience? What? There's danger to theological knowledge? What? You can know more about God, listen to podcasts, read lots of books, get a divinity degree, pray, fast, study, do those things, and there could be danger of being too, imagine that, so that I, even after, maybe especially after these extraordinary spiritual revelations, would not be too elated. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. There's always been lots of speculation about this. Some people think it was like a temptation that constantly tore at Paul and tormented him. Some people think it was a physical ailment. We don't know. We just know there's a thorn in the flesh. And back to the text, three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Now watch the trajectory of Paul's life here. When he was a young man, he was confident, arrogant, self-assured about all the wrong things. He's blinded on the road to Damascus. Now he's, uh, he's stumbling around until finally God through Ananias restores his sight and he's able to see he has this very different perspective on God and life in the world, has a radical conversion. He's preaching and teaching, and for the first time, Gentiles are coming to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The world is being transformed. And, oh yeah, by the way, one of the eminent philosophers of all time ever in the Apostle Paul. As he's growing in his own faith, God gives him deep experiences of the presence of God, to be caught up in the third heaven, to have visions, to have revelation, to have mystical, charismatic experience. It seems like the trajectory now is after being knocked off his horse once, it's just going up, up, up. But what Paul says is, to keep me from being too elated, I have this thorn in my flesh. And the apostle who has laid hands on the sick and seen them healed. The apostle who preaches the gospel of Jesus and watches the masses come to Christ. The apostle who is saving the world. God is saving the world through him. God is spreading Christianity to the West and it just turns the world upside down. All these things that God is doing in him. And he has this one thorn in his flesh. He has this one thing in his life that when he brings it to God in prayer over and over again and says, Jesus, will you fix this for me? The answer he gets is, no, I will not. Not fixing this. I'm not changing this. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My strength is made perfect in weakness. 
after the mystical experience, after the head knowledge, after all the things that Paul has understood, the older, more mature version of Paul is not just growing in power, 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 becoming more and more dominant in the things of God. He's getting to that deeper, quieter way of knowing God where he's coming to know God in the unknowing. He's coming to live in that kind of place. It's not always spectacular answered prayers. It's not always ecstatic revelations. It's not always dramatic experience. Jesus himself, when he, uh, think about it one more time. He's pleading with Jesus, won't you change this? No, I will not. Instead, he wants to keep Paul hungry and humble and dependent because that's the way that we're supposed to live. That's the place we're supposed to live from. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm just posing this as the question. What if, what if this is what growth in faith looks like? Not getting smarter, not getting more theologically astute. Nothing wrong with mystical charismatic experiences. I believe in those, but not really about that either. That This is what happens. Um, so Chris and I last week were talking about this wonderful document, uh, it's, it's fa- the mystical theology of Dionysius, and uh, it appears in the early 500s, somewhere around 522, and uh, it became very influential in the Eastern Church, to some extent in the Western Church. By the way, even that language of uh, mystical there, you know, in early church language, whenever we speak of mystics, that's always about people who really seek to know God through prayer, really, this experiential knowledge of God through prayer, the people who are devoted to prayer and the experience of the presence of God. In this text of Dionysius, he, he writes in just an extraordinary way about, uh, he uses kind of Moses as the image, about how when Moses is on the Mount of Sinai, that the higher he gets, the more he's ascending into the cloud of God's presence. So that the higher you go, it doesn't get brighter, it gets darker. The higher you go, the blurrier it gets. The higher you go, the less you see in some ways, the more you feel that you're surrounded by darkness. And I want to read just a little bit of this to you. If some of this sounds a little high concept, do your best to try to hear this with your heart more than your head anyway, because I think that that's the way we need to hear it. But I think this is so beautiful. He says, just picking up the section, through these, its incomprehensible presence, presence of God, is manifested upon those heights of its holy places, that then it breaks forth, even from that which is seen and that which sees, and plunges the mystic into the darkness of unknowing. I love that phrase. Whence all perfection of understanding is excluded, and he is enwrapped in that which is altogether intangible, wholly absorbed in it that is beyond all and in none else, whether himself or another. And through the inactivity of all of his reasoning powers is united by his highest faculty to it that is wholly unknowable. Thus, by knowing nothing, he knows that which is beyond his knowledge. Now that is some like Jedi wisdom right here, right? That's some Yoda sounding business. But do you hear what's being said here? I think there's something about this that's so, that's so extraordinary, so fascinating. Knowing God in the unknowing, knowing God in a way that transcends reason, knowing God in a way that transcends mental faculty. We're not talking about smarts anymore. We're talking about this deeper kind of abiding in the presence of God. Look at this next part. We pray that we may come into this darkness, which is beyond light, and without seeing and without knowing, 
to see and to know that which is above vision and knowledge through the realization that by not seeing and by unknowing, we attain to true vision and knowledge and thus praise. Oh, last part. Let this be my prayer, and I really love this. But do, dear Timothy, in the diligent exercise of mystical contemplation, leave behind the senses and the operations of the intellect and all things sensible and intellectual and all things in the world of being and non-being that you may arise by unknowing towards the union as far as it is attainable with it that transcends all being and all knowledge. Amen, glory to God, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. That's say a lot of things that are only funny to me. It seemed like a good place for kind of a good Pentecostal amen. You know, I think there's something about this that just, this is really intoxicating me right now because I feel like I just keep coming to the end of my own knowledge. I feel like the more I grow in my faith, in my trust of the Lord, the less I'm able to trust my own senses. I'm not able so much to trust, I'm not able to trust my own discernment. I'm not able to trust my own resources. I'm certainly not able to trust my own intellectual resources, coming to a place where we don't have to understand everything. We're not even trying to so much. But what we aspire to is the union with God that takes place in the unknowing. Look how far that comes. If that first way of seeing was all about self-assurance and confidence and, 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 and knowing, the second way is embracing the unknowing, being okay with being blind, being okay with having to get up every day and to say all over again, Who are you, Lord, and what do you have for me to do? Living from that humble place and going back there over and over and over again. I didn't used to understand this before, but I'm so convinced at this point in my life that God is only really seen from the underside of things, that so long as we're riding high, we really can't see anything at all. So long as we're on the horse looking down, we really can't see anything at all. It's only like when we're on our back looking up that our vision starts to become really truthful. Is that making sense in any way? I had never experienced any profound suffering or pain or guilt in my life. And my whole sort of shipwreck season, oh my gosh. I mean, it's like, and it's so weird because there's so much of that I'd love to live differently. And yet, I wouldn't trade the way I see now for anything. Because I feel like before, I just, I didn't see right. I thought I did. It's the thing that happens if you get a new car. If you buy a gray Nissan, then the next day you're driving and all of a sudden it's like, there are gray Nissans everywhere. Do you know this experience? Now what happened is not that in the last 24 hours after you got a new car that there was a statistical increase that people in Tulsa were just buying new gray Nissans. But what happens is because you have one now, now it's like you're hyper aware of it. You just start seeing it differently. And that's what happened with me and any form of like suffering and pain. Oh my, oh. I'm surrounded by people with profound suffering. I didn't even see this before. I didn't even recognize it. But now I see them. And, it, and they see me because they can recognize the brokenness in me. It is, a, it is actually a better way of seeing, though it doesn't seem like that. I, I got I to land the plane. But one more thing I want to say before we get out, and that's about the character of Ananias. Because in the same way in the story that we see Saul coming to see in a different way and coming to know in a different way through the unknowing, through the veil, uh, that, like uh, that language in the other text we read, going the deeper into that cloud. We also see the transformation in Ananias. Ananias, unlike Saul, is not a new Christian, not a new convert to Jesus. He apparently is mature in the faith. He's praying. He's seeking the Lord. He's already had a Damascus Road kind of encounter. 
But part of what happens in this text is not only does Saul come to see in a way that's very, very different, but Ananias comes to see differently too. Because even though he might understand a lot about God, even though he might be mature, a man of faith, a good man, all of that, he still thinks he knows something about Saul that he doesn't know because he's heard stuff about Saul. And if he's trusting on his own senses, if he's trusting in what he's heard, I find that exchange between him and the Lord so comical, by the way. That sounds like the kind of conversations I would have with the Lord. Um, I want you to go to this man, Saul. Yeah, okay, thanks for that. I don't know if you check my Facebook feed, but I know a good bit about this Saul. I'm not sure if you're aware that he kills people like me, so maybe this is not a great idea. And the Lord, again, that gentleman, shut up, boy, just go do it. Okay, and so he does, and he's good. He's got a good heart. But what happens in this text if Ananias would have been stuck in seeing Saul the way that he did and wasn't willing to trust God's perspective on Saul? I think I want to say it like this. For those of us who have been in the faith for a long time and might fancy ourselves as being a little bit mature, I think we just need to hear this word. You might see some things. You might know some things. You might have had some experiences, but just because you've seen some things doesn't mean you've seen everything. And just because you know some things doesn't mean that you know everything. And even if you're right about a lot of stuff, and inevitably we're wrong about a lot of stuff that we don't know about, but that's okay, it's gonna be fairly significant if the little bit that you don't know if, let me say this the most confusing way possible, if you don't know what you don't know, then it gets real dangerous because you're not open to allow God to speak to you in a way that will cause you to see Saul in a way that's different. You're not open to God's perspective on somebody else. I really am rapping with this, right? So like, I just find that when we allow God to shape the way that we see, Part of what happens is that is that we start to see the people around us through the lens of God's hope in a way that's really, really transformative. I, I used to always think of discernment as like, um, okay, my spidey sense tingles and this feels weird. There's something wrong with you. Now, I'm not saying that never happens. It can happen. But to be honest with you, lots of times when I get weirded out or like weird about a person, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's something very much in my spirit, <laughs> that doesn't like something, that feels offended in some way. I don't trust that instinct much. More often than not, the way the Holy Spirit works is that I have a negative assumption about somebody and I'm determined, I think that I see them right and the Holy Spirit, oh no, 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 you, you don't see them the way that I see them. And it becomes so powerful when you learn to trust that and you learn to speak into that. I don't ever want to talk about Word of Faith in Tulsa, Oklahoma because that could get so off the rails fast because a lot of us have bad experiences of this sort of like power of positive thinking. You know, if you want a Rolls Royce, speak it into existence. I'm not talking about that, but here's my one intersection with something that might sound like word of faith, okay? I think there is something powerful and transformative that happens when you see a person through the lens of God's hope and you speak into that. The way that Ananias, while Saul was still blind, lays hands on him and says, Brother Saul. That's when the scales fall off his eyes. He's speaking God's hope into his life. And there's something about speaking the hope of God that makes God's future possible in people's lives. That's why it's so powerful. So I do believe it works when you look at someone who might be at a place that they're very far from God and they might feel really bad about themselves. But you begin to speak that you see something in them that they don't see. How God sees them. God's future for them. The God who is possibility itself, what they can become. All that. There's something so powerful about that. I just, have to, I, I just have to leave it on that. 
that part of what it is to come to see in the kingdom is learning how to see others rightly and to see others through the perspective of God's hope. And I just think so often when I see people and I think I understand their flaws and I understand what's wrong with them and I've got all the patterns figured out, so often that really is flesh, not spirit. And instead of seeing through the grid of God's hope and God, do you hear what I'm saying? That can sound like naivety. Call it what you want to call it. There's something about the sight of God that restores our innocence. And please stand up or I will just never stop talking. So I want to pray for you before we recite the faith of the church and we come to the table. Just very briefly, would you join me? Oh God, we admit that there is so much that we do not see. There is so much that we do not know. And there are things currently that we think that we know that we don't know really. Father, we ask that by your grace, that you would blind us if you need to blind us. Hit us with the book if you need to hit us with the book. Whatever it takes for us to be awake to you, whatever it takes to become the kinds of people who see. Teach us to be humble. Teach us to live from these questions. And in fact, we would ask them freshly even now. Who are you, Lord? And what would you have us to do? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.